Welcome to the FDI Podcast with me, Alex Owen Hunt, Global Investment Reporter at FDI Magazine. Joining me today at the Financial Times offices in London is Nigel Vaz, the CEO of Publicist Sapient. Today we'll be discussing how digitalization is affecting the international expansion of companies. Hello, Nigel. Hey, Alex. Thanks for having me. What exactly is digitalization, Nigel, and what are the main benefits for companies that become digital? When you think about digitization, Alex, it's nothing but companies enabling our behavior as consumers. More and more of us today have our mobile phone with us more than any other device. Every single thing we experience is physical and digital. So digitization is just asking every single business we've been used to interacting with over the last hundred years how they are going to reimagine themselves in the context of a world that is very different. So how do I book a cab? Well, through my mobile phone. How do I shop? Well, through my computer or my mobile phone. How do I watch entertainment downloaded you know, and streamed to my television? All of these things are examples of digitization. And the benefit to companies, as you talked about it, is getting a new generation of users and consumers. Because there are so many people that would never have interacted with these businesses were it not for them fundamentally shifting their business model to meet these consumers where they are. I caught up with uh, Thomas Ilka, who wrote a working paper at the IMF about digitalization and FDI, which is really the discussion we're going to have. So uh, uh, let's just listen to that and see what you think. I mean, FDI used to be all about location. Either you wanted access to resources, either raw material or labor, cheap labor, or access to market. And digitization just makes locational decisions, you know, it becomes less important where you locate physically. There might be other considerations, right? So, for instance, for market access, in the developing countries, more now have access to uh, uh, digital service technology than secondary school or clean water. That is in developing countries, right? So then you have a big market there. Do you agree with Thomas that the nature of companies' cross-border expansion has changed due to digitalization? Well, I think it absolutely has, simply because the nature of not only cross-border expansion, but in-country expansion has changed. So if you're a bank today in the UK or in the US, who are the people that you're trying to attract to get a savings account or a checking account? It's young people. What have most of these young people grown up doing, spending time on social media, on platforms that are entirely digital? So, of course, if you're trying to attract them and you require them to go into a bank to open a bank account, that's a very different experience than opening an iTunes account sitting at home on their computer. So why would you be able to attract them? So I think as you then now start to look at this in the FDI context in markets like India and China, You know, China is the Wakanda of payments, right? I mean, they are an absolute giant uh, in in enabling a street cart merchant to take money using Alipay uh, on their their phone. Uh, And if you think about that generation, it's the current generation of people. Imagine the next generation of Chinese customers that most Western companies would love to have as consumers. You're going to have to meet them at their own pace. India completely skipped the landline revolution of the United States because they're just too complicated to get landlines. But there's now more people with mobile devices than any, uh, you know, major country in the world, perhaps with the exception of China. And when you start to look at that, you start to say, well, if you're going to basically try and get at this Indian consumer and you're not on those devices offering those digital services, there is a big challenge. Sure. 
And it, well, it's clear that the rapidly changing nature of technology and its use by enterprises you discussed and consumers is really a phenomenon that has revolutionized the world in terms of industries and, 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 and the economy going forward. But at Public Sapient, you, you've helped establish companies for almost over three decades, really, with their digital transformation. And you've got some really big clients like McDonald's and Unilever, Citibank, to mention just a few. But, you know, when you're advising these clients of yours in their digital transformation, how big a role does cross-border expansion play within that? And, and you know, is FDI really at the forefront of their digital transformations? Well, I think any customer today of ours is looking to attract an audience. And this audience is increasingly becoming global. So let's just take a, you know, a simple example that exists in the world for us today, right? Let's look at Netflix. Netflix has been the poster child of a company that's attracted a crazy audience across the world and is constantly in search of now creating new programming and content to attract a British audience, uh, Indian audience, a German audience, a North American audience. So they're creating content to attract um, this, this consumer. And if you think about what that means is they're making huge investments in entrepreneurs and content creators in all of these local markets, stimulating a whole raft of content creation and production. You know, The Crown is a fantastic example of this in the context of the UK, probably one of the most expensive TV shows ever made, generating a huge global audience, but also a significant investment into a market um, like the UK, which has got a storied track record of creating amazing content, but probably not enough investment, right? And then you... And then you switch gears to, you know, say a market like India as an example. And I was using this, uh, you know, earlier, right there, you have almost two or 300 million people for whom the first personalized experience of watching content is on a mobile device. And a great, you know, stat that I heard recently was, you know, PewDiePie used to be the biggest YouTuber uh, on, uh, you know, on YouTube as a channel. And was usurped by T-Series, which was an old dead Bollywood company uh, that used to make films in the 80s and 90s, who are now starting to make 15 or 20 minute clips entirely consumable on your mobile device streamed at various qualities uh, on YouTube. So there's a whole generation of people in India that think about YouTube as a television channel and where they're consuming most of their content. If you look at this and you look at one of our uh, our big clients who's now competing with Netflix in a pretty major way, which is Disney. Now, Netflix came from the technology space, built up the technology and the experience, and then started to create content. Disney's journey began the other way. You know, Disney is an amazing company with tremendous content in and of its own right, but then it also added Marvel and Lucasfilms. So all these storied brands like Star Wars and, you know, all of the uh, the comic characters and has now launched Disney Plus, which, you know, by some reports in, in, in the media publicly had 10 million people sign up to it on the first day. And if you think about that, that's coming from the other way. That's what you might consider a more traditional business starting to say, hey, we've got some tremendous assets that we are now going to bring to bear in the digital world and start to deliver it in the same way that people consume Netflix. As you think about that, even as you assume these are the only two companies that are left standing from a content perspective, that's a significant juggernaut in terms of driving foreign direct investments in Central and Eastern Europe, in Africa, where you have a ton of audiences who've always been forced to settle with their local content producer 
creating stuff for them at very low price points, very low budgets, and in a very traditional format without all of the know-how. And if you think about somebody like a Disney and it starts to now operate like Netflix using data to understand what consumers in Nigeria are are watching, that's going to drive investment in Nigeria in the context of creating content or in the Arab world with Egypt, which is now starting to fast become a, a dominant player. And so you can start to see the threads of digitization, the need to get more consumers, create real opportunities for investment in countries in sectors that have probably been overlooked for a long time. Mm. Yeah, it's a very interesting discussion about uh, the race to become the streaming giant. Netflix has been uh, at the forefront of this race, let's say, for a while. And, and players like Disney and, and well, Amazon, of course, has been in it for a while. It's, sure. it's an interesting space to watch. But I mean, of course, your clients are across lots of different sectors. So how do you think this need for a physical presence in markets, as you say, to maybe find out about what uh, Nigerian uh, uh, consumers are wanting in terms of content. I mean, what what's the difference between different sectors in terms of the need for physical presence in markets? Look, I, I don't think you can ever assume that a digital presence will fully supplant a physical presence, right? That's not realistic. And I don't think what we as people want. I think what is very clear, though, is being clear about what we want a physical presence for. So do I really want a physical presence in the context of banking? to open a bank account? Probably not. Quite comfortable doing that in my home. But there might be certain things that require more involvement, more engagement with a personal banker that I might actually want a presence for. And I also think this idea of a physical presence and a digital presence is starting to blur. So let me give you an example, right? Very recently, um, we're in the Middle East looking at prototypes, which are already operational, of ATM machines uh, that actually, whilst you're going ahead and performing your transaction, the the screen turns into a person that you could talk to who's actually somewhere else but feels very close because you're in this uh, you know, a space where you can now have a conversation with this person about stuff that you need help with whilst you're going ahead and doing your digital banking. Another example in the healthcare space, our health insurance, my company's health insurance, is provided by a company called Babylon, which allows me to physically access a doctor any time of the day, and they have all of my health records in a very personal way. So while I actually feel like that the interaction is happening digital, it's mimicking what I would otherwise have to do in the physical world which when, when, you, when you have a little kid that's sick at like, you know, 1 a.m. in the morning is not practical because there's no general GP office open. So as you think about these, the way we think about this is the customer journey or the journey of the person, the patient journey, the customer journey, the citizen journey in the way we, we deal with government, right? Do I want physical access? Absolutely. But at particular points in my journey when it really enhances my experience. Do I want digital experiences? Absolutely. And so when I think about financial services, when I think about retail, another example in retail, buy something online, but I want to return it in the store. Try something in the store, but buy it online. And I don't want you, the company selling that particular item to me, to treat me any differently as I switch between these channels. This, for me, is entirely now driven by the customer journey, as opposed to the traditional idea of you should. So our experience to a lot of our clients is as you're designing this customer experience, ask yourself the question, what is the role that your physical presence is going to play? And I would not generalize 
digital presence to be one amorphous thing? Is it digital on a laptop with video? Is it digital using voice on a mobile device? Is it digital in a physical location like wayfinding? You know, we uh, very recently created this uh, for a customer where you could create a list of all of the things you want to buy and you physically get navigated around a store so you can pick stuff up. So the physical and the digital coming together uh, and being focused on the customer journey, I think, is, is, is really how these experiences ought to be designed. Yeah, I would completely agree. I mean, the the revolution in retail is a really interesting one to look at. And as you say, increasing omni-channel approaches to what their customers need and want, as well as increasing digitalization and the use of big data within stores is, is an interesting discussion to be had, but perhaps for, a, for another day, let's say. Um, I mean, you, you've touched on it a lot, but your real aim, I suppose, as Publish Sapien is to, to build trust amongst uh, consumers for the clients that you're 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 providing your consulting services to. So, how important is that physical presence for trust? I mean, again, you've touched on it quite a lot, but as a direct question, how important is that? And does that differ between perhaps advanced economies versus emerging economies? I think trust is very important, but one of the things I think that you know, it, you know, there's a generation of consumers for whom trust was built around a physical presence. And I think now trust is increasingly built around the experience that you have with a brand. So I don't think people trust Netflix any less to produce great television for them, even though, uh, you know, there might be a physical TV studio that had been producing content for all of these years. For me, trust is more about the experience that you create. And when I think specifically about your question, uh, in the context of what we do, most of the brands we actually work with are very trusted. You know, so Carrefour is our client in France, one of the largest supermarkets in, in France. And it's an incredibly trusted brand. But what consumers want to see is them be successful in a context on channels that they've historically not had as much trust in because perhaps their experiences online were not as, as good as Amazon. So how do we actually start to create the Carrefour trust in a digital context. So for them, it's not about creating trust because they have physical stores. For them, it's creating trust in the context of a digital ecosystem where they're being compared to Amazon, who has the bar for trust. The one thing uh, I would say that it, you know that connects trust uh, to the question that you're asking is most people, by and large, understand that most digital companies have played fast and loose with their data. And a lot of our clients, you know, respected, trusted brands like the Carrefours and the Disneys and some of the others that you mentioned have historically always had a very high degree of we will only use the information you give us for your benefit. And to the extent that they can translate that ethical behavior in the context of the digital world, I think they they potentially have a huge advantage going in. I know a lot of people that will trust uh, you know, a, a lot of those physical brands with their data and with their information because of the longstanding ethical behavior they've demonstrated versus perhaps a bunch of the newer entrants in the digital space who've played a lot more fast and loose. Yes. Yeah. No, I completely agree with you. And, and there is something inherent about having uh, a physical relationship with a company that you feel uh, perhaps there is a higher level of trust. So you've touched on it already that there's needs to perhaps get the right talent around the world. And that is an, a, a massive part of the digital revolution, let's say, and increasing digitalization. You need the right technical teams. You need R&D centers in the right locations. And this is a, a fundamental element of the, the move towards the digital economy, let's say. So would you say that expanding international 
internationally is is key for companies to to drive innovation and find the right talent for the future? I feel like generally the world we live in today is as much as our politicians might not like to advocate this fact is becoming borderless. And I think what the digital world is starting to show you is that no matter where talent and opportunity exists, those two things will start to come together. And what we are seeing in in many countries who've made big investments in building up the younger capability and talent in the digital space, they're benefiting from that pretty significantly. We've seen you know, countries start to make big investments in education, in arts, in creativity, in STEM subjects to create a workforce that all of a sudden starts to become very attractive for other geographies that probably need access to that talent for their digitization. And we are definitely seeing that drive a more global approach because what we are seeing is ultimately, as, as you pointed out, is a race to get to the skills. And if you don't have access to those skills, you've got to find them wherever they exist. And, you know, it, it, just to use Silicon Valley in this context as, uh, you know, a, uh, an example of a place that has actually done a pretty good job, you know, from their perspective of brain draining so much of the talent from around the world because they created opportunity and access for these folks to do, you know, tremendous work. But I think if you look at the fintech space in London as an example, it's a fantastic uh, example of, you know, the ecosystem, the financing, and the capability from a technical perspective all coming together to start to create some, you know, phenomenal businesses that have grown probably greater here than in many other parts of the world. I completely agree. And perhaps fintech's going to circumvent the the uh, uncertainty this protracted Brexit process has brought about. <laughs> but again, that is a discussion we can have uh, in another podcast. Um, you know, there's two main types of foreign direct investment. One is uh, cross-border mergers and acquisitions, or M&A. So that's essentially when you partner or acquire companies in another market. Uh, and the other is Greenfield, which is what we focus on at FDI Magazine, and essentially is the expansion into new markets through uh, build, new buildings or, or jobs. Do you think it's perhaps preferable for uh, M&A or Greenfield? Is, is there a preference in terms of what is, what is better in terms of driving digitalization? I think this is a fantastic question, Alex, because as you think about how companies have evolved, you know, we think about this in, in three ways, right? What are you trying to do? Are you trying to, you know, defend your position? Are you trying to differentiate or are you trying to disrupt? Oftentimes, you know, most businesses start by defending their current position and that takes um, far less of a greenfield approach because that's building capability within your own organization because you're trying to protect what you have. And it's based on the kind of Warren Buffett principle of like, how can I use my economic moat so that while I have that moat, I can start to make investments and move up. But then as you start to move from defend into differentiate, which is the kind of next category up, most companies are often faced with this build versus buy idea. You know, could we buy something from the outside uh, or, or could we build it? And the question we always ask our clients to you know, evaluate is, is the thing that you're buying, is its business the ability to transform you or is its business to do what it does, right? So I'll give you an example, you know, having this conversation with the CEO of a major retailer and, 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 and their, you know, idea was to buy or acquire this e-commerce platform, which they felt would transform them. And when we looked at this company, it was, you know, 200 people odd. And for the acquisition price, because they had a pretty good growth rate, 
would have resulted in the cost of about 12 million per employee, you know, in terms of the acquisition. And so what we were trying to have the conversation with them about is saying, okay, so you get these 200 people at the cost of about 12 million per person. Is that investment going to be enough for the virus to infect the host and change it? Or will the antibodies from your organization kill the virus? In which case, not only have you spent 12 million per employee and you're going to screw up their business, you're certainly not going to have changed yourself. So I think it really depends because I think if you're thinking about the greenfield option or, or the buy option versus the kind of invest in your own business option, it's got to have enough weight to start to help you change your core business. And we are seeing, you know, those kinds of investments happen. I'd say by and large, though, the answer is never going to be we can simply buy something and not change ourselves. I think that's a recipe for the thing that you bought, either not flourishing itself or going ahead and flourishing just fine. And the core business uh, over a period of time, just losing any any kind of relevance. I would agree. Since we focus on Greenfield, of course, I yeah. think it's better to expand yeah. through your own business and find your, your own way in a new market. The international expansion of companies has clearly fundamentally changed as a result of digitalization. And, but what does that mean for the organizations trying to attract investment from foreign companies? Do investment promotion agencies and economic development offices have to change in the digital era? I, I think they do, because I think what you're trying to represent is a fundamentally different idea than what you were historically representing. When I think historically a lot of these businesses, the, the most value that they could create was creating exposure to interesting businesses that, that exist. But today, most people have an idea of uh, what businesses exist because we can all start to see things happen. I mean, I'll use Israel as a fantastic example of this. You know, they've created this wonderful business-to-business -business startup ecosystem which unlike the Valley, which is more business to consumer focused, is more business to business focused. And we've seen some big acquisitions like the acquisition of Mobileye, uh, you know, and, and Waze amongst, you know, uh, you know, those. But what's interesting about, you know, I think the way they've approached it is rather than simply focusing on people getting awareness about the kinds of businesses they have there, they've started to ask themselves the question, what do you as a company need to help you transform if you are an auto manufacturer? And then we'll curate all the startups in the context of problems you have so that you don't have to go fishing amongst thousands and thousands of companies because we're actually doing the work in the context of thinking about your business. So I think those agencies that you're talking about have to start to become far more consultative because they've got to start to say, what problem is a big North American bank trying to solve? What problem is a big uh, European retailer trying to solve? What problem is a big department store trying to solve? And which of these stable of companies that I'm trying to promote could potentially play a role in making that happen? So it starts to become a function more of curation and consultancy outside of simply just promotion. And so going forward, how do you think digitalization will, will affect FDI and the international expansion of companies uh, in the future? Well, I think if you think about any business today, right, you're either trying to seek growth or you're trying to take cost out of your business and become more efficient. And whether it's a growth play or an efficiency play, the thing you want in both situations is creating a better experience for your customers. If you can do all three, drive growth, take cost out of your business and create a better experience for customers, you're on to a winning proposition. And most of these businesses, I think, are going to seek to do that 
in a cross-boundary fashion on a global basis. And in order to enable those three things, look for the talent and the capability you need wherever you can find it. So I think when you think about it in the context of, uh, you know, the growth that digitization is going to have, by definition, I think it's going to drive that growth across sector, across geography to serve the consumers where they need it and to access the talent where they can find it. Sure. Uh, thank you very much, Nigel. This will be a very interesting area to watch and one in which we'll be corresponding more on at FDI Magazine. If you've enjoyed the content today, please feel free to go to fdiintelligence.com or at FDI Intelligence on Twitter for more. See you next time. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.